Welcome everyone. Um, thank you for coming to the uh, first of our Open Beat Midrash uh, sessions for the summer. Uh, my name is Michael Fraud. I am the uh, assistant program manager for Trisha. And uh, the idea of these is to give everyone a bit of a taste of some of what our students are learning over the summer. Uh, right now we are running two of our signature programs uh, that usually run in person over the summer online. So our Dr. Beth Samuels High School program uh, for young women who are in high school and our summer Kolel uh, are both running with a total of about 80 students between the two of them who are doing full-time immersive learning with Drisha. And uh, what we wanted to do this week and next week is to have the opportunity to learn from a few of the faculty members who are teaching as part of our summer programs. Uh, and so this week we are uh, starting with Sarah Zeger, uh, who is going to be talking to us uh, very shortly about uh, her topic for the evening of um, Tsarki Dulbanim and the ethics of childcare it, to understand Jewish leadership. Uh, and, and care ethics more broadly. Um, so we are thrilled to welcome Sarah for that. Um, Sarah is a doctoral candidate of religious studies and philosophy at Yale University. Her research focuses on the influence of Judaism and Christianity on moral philosophy. Uh, she's originally from Albuquerque, New Mexico, um, and has been awarded a number of different fellowships over the years, has studied at Hadar, has written for a number of publications, including the Lair House, Journal of Jewish Ethics, Jew School, and Nashim. Um, so we have loved having Sarah as a teacher, both this summer for her class on Talmud and Moral Philosophy, uh, as well as past classes and lectures that she's given at Trisha. Um, and again, uh, thrilled to have her here tonight for the topic of the pain of raising children, using care ethics to understand Jewish leadership. Um, we are going to start in just a minute. Uh, Sarah's going to screen share the source sheet. Uh, please feel free to make use of the chat or of uh, commenting on Facebook Live. Um, if you have a question, there will be Q&A spots scattered throughout. Um, but just to make it easier for us to identify the questions in the middle of the chat, if you have a question, please just write Q at the beginning so that we can kind of find it quickly. Um, so Sarah, whenever you're ready, uh, feel free. Great. Thank you so much, Michael, for that lovely introduction um, and also for your like truly heroic technical efforts, both for this webinar, but also for just like making teaching online um, in a Beit Midrash like that's far away from you really seamless and and a joy to do so i thank you and i know our um, our students also really thank you for all your hard work um so yeah hi i'm sarah the main goal of our shear today is to talk about halakhic leadership and decision making and to think about what kinds of pe what kind of people we would need to be to be good halakhic and jewish leaders um, and we'll be mostly focusing on two examples of that, but I, there are parallel um, other examples that are kind of relevant in the same in the same zone. So we're going to be thinking mostly about being a shas, being a prayer leader on a fast day, and being a dayan on a Sanhedrin, a like, judge on a rabbinic court. There's a kind of similar set of language to talk about 
um, ejute being a, a witness in court, but we're not going to look at those examples today, but just know that there's like a kind of broader, um, broader set of examples that's quite similar. So I think often the kind of general assumption that we make is that being a good leader in some kind of like halakhic role is actually about having some sort of technical competence. So being a good shot means knowing all the nusach and being able to, to like sing it and perform it nicely, and maybe even have some kind of theological understanding of like what is going on in davening. And similarly, being a good dayan requires knowing a lot about halakha, knowing how to apply the law, and potentially even being sufficiently removed and distant from the like parties to a lawsuit so that we can make fair judgments, right? This is kind of the underlying idea that we don't let someone who's kind of related to someone in the case serve as a judge. So the goal of, of this, of our time together is really for me to suggest that there might be other kinds of experiences and sort of positions in society that actually really do matter for our ability to hold positions of leadership and halakhic communities. Um, and so I'm going to try to get us kind of out of that hub, you know, that like basic assumption that like what matters most is technical expertise. Um, just a kind of small content warning and note, depending on how things go with time, we are going to be talking about some sources that deal with miscarriage, deal with infant death, that deal with fertility and infertility. And I want everyone to just kind of walk into that knowing that that's where we're going. Okay, I think with that, that kind of fills out our background of kind of what is the goal of our conversation today. So I'm going to jump into the sources. Um, so just give me one moment to start up the screen share so everyone can see. Here we go. Okay, great. I'm hoping everyone can see. All right, so we're going to just start off with a little bit of philosophical background of a conversation that's kind of going on in the world of moral philosophy. And my suggestion to you and kind of the suggestion I made over the course of the class that I, um, the afternoon class that I taught in our uh, summer kollel is that Thinking through those debates in moral philosophy can be helpful to us in learning Gemara. So um, we're going to start off with a passage from um, Peter Abelard, who's kind of an important, like, early medieval philosopher and writer. And he writes an autobiography that people love to read. And one of the things that happens in his, in his autobiography is that he falls in love with this person named Heloise. And she, he's like, I think I'd like to marry you. And she says, you know what? I don't think it's a good idea for you, because if you do that, actually, your philosophical career will be over. So here's what he said. Then, turning from the consideration of such hindrances to the study of philosophy, Heloise bade me observe that what were the conditions of honorable wedlock? What possible concord could there be between scholars and domestics, between authors and cradles, between books or tablets and distaffs, between the stylus or the pen and the spindle? What man, intent on his religious or philosophical meditations, can possibly endure the whining of children, the low advice of the nurse seeking to quiet them, or the noisy confusion of family life? Who can endure the continual untidiness of children? So Abelard's, well, really Heloise's gambit here, is actually, sort of illustrates that there's a very similar kind of, like, default assumption, habamina, about what are relevant experiences for being a kind of good philosophical thinker as there are for like being a good, let's say, Dayan or Halakhic thinker. That one of the things you need to do is like not be too caught up in all of this like crazy world of like your family life. You need to be able to distance yourself from that. Um, and this assumption is one that kind of gets, sort of takes off in a serious way um, when the sort of what we know is the social contract tradition is born 
And there's, a, there's an effort by thinkers like Thomas Hobbes, who's kind of a father of that tradition, um, to think about citizenship in a modern, like potentially democratic, although perhaps not so much, um, society as requiring that we like distance ourselves from our family connections. And the, the basic intuition behind this, which isn't a, such a crazy one, is that you will have much stronger allegiance to your family members than you will to just any person who might happen to be also a citizen of the same nation that you're a part of. And so you might then be kind of willing to, you would treat people unfairly because you're, you're more connected to your own family than you are to your fellow citizens. So Hobbes says, you know what? I don't want to do that. I want to just like get away from this whole like intensity of family connection and actually think of ourselves in a totally different way. So here's what Hobbes says in a line that is oft quoted, and I would say also often, often maligned. Let us consider men, but is, and he really means men, um, as if, but even now, sprung out of the earth, and suddenly, like mushrooms, come to full maturity without any kind of, all kind of engagement to each other. So Hobbes' claim here is basically like the way to think about people when we want to think about them as citizens, or even as leaders and participants in um, in a kind of public conversation and in public life is as if they just actually sprung into adulthood. And like all this crazy stuff, the dis right, the, the kind of whining of children, lullabies of the nurse, noisy confusion of family life is not relevant. What's relevant is like grown-ups having a modulated, nice conversation where everyone treats everyone as an equal and no one is too caught up in kind of their family ties. This is, this is a kind of becomes a prevailing intuition about public life in kind of the Western uh, intellectual tradition in sort of the early modern and modern period. Then comes along a series of kind of feminist philosophers who say, look, wait a minute here. We've gotten something very wrong. There's something very artificial about the notion that what it means to be a participant in a public conversation is actually to like just excise a whole part of human life. Everybody, people don't bring up like mushrooms. Everybody has some kind of past. Everyone was once a whining child. And so we need to kind of think about that and take that seriously as we think about morality, as we think about politics. Um, so one of the kind of, um, there are lots of people who make this kind of argument, but one of the people who did it, I think, most interestingly and articulately is a, a philosopher named Shayla Ben-Habib, um, recently retired from my uh, alma mater, Yale. Um, and she basically makes a distinction between what she calls two kinds of self. There's a sovereign self, and that's Hobbes' mushroom self. This is a person who just pops up out of nowhere. And then there's a situated self. And a situated self is actually a person like you and me, who has a past, who has a family, and all of the attendant complications that come with that. And she says, look, we shouldn't be just thinking about a sovereign self. That's a kind of imagined weird construction that doesn't match reality. Actually, our political theory should be more about a situated self. So here's what she says. In the world of the sovereign self, that world is one in which individuals are grown up before they're born, in which boys are men before they're children, a world which neither mother nor sister nor wife exists, right? So this is, she's like dug into the idea that Hobbes is considering men as popping up like mushrooms. Women, to the extent that they don't participate in public life, end up actually relegated to a different, um, a totally different moral world. And we end up not considering what they have to say. So she says, you know what would be better? It would be better if we thought about a situated self. So she's going to say, for the situate in the world 
or kind of political or ethical environment that we imagine based on the situated self. There are norms of friendship, love, and care. These norms require in various ways that I exhibit more than the simple assertion of my rights and duties in the face of your needs. She thinks that's what the, the sovereign self likes to do, right? And to some extent, she's right. You know, the social contract theorists are all about like, here are the rights that I owe you, here are the rights you owe me. In treating you in accordance with the norms of friendship, love, and care, I confirm not only, not your humanity, but your human individuality. The moral categories that accompany such interactions are those of responsibility, bonding, and sharing. The corresponding moral feelings are those of love, care, sympathy, and solidarity. And she's going to sort of try to shift the tone. So, um, Shayla Ben Habib is really a political philosopher, and she's trying to think about kind of big political systems. But kind of at the same time, or even just a little bit after her, there's a kind of parallel conversation going on in just kind of interpersonal ethics, not blown up onto the political level, um, where people are trying to articulate um, an ethical theory that instead of being based on this like mushroom model, where someone just like springs into springs into action with no one with no background, but it's actually deriving ethical insight from the experience of caring for what Virginia Held and other care ethicists call dependent others, right? People, children, but not only children, who require our care in order to survive. She says that's the basis. That's actually a fundamental feature of human morality, and it's something that we need to acknowledge when we think about what are the ethical demands that we have. One of the things that makes this position most kind of radical is that actually the experiences of often women who spend a huge amount of their time taking care of dependent others, of babies, of the elderly, of the ill, um, were not seen for a long time as kind of sources of important ethical or philosophical reflection, right? Think back to Abelard who says, wait a minute, wait, why are you telling me you're gonna do philosophy about like diaper and baby? That's crazy. Virginia Held says, no, it's not crazy at all. In fact, it's very important because one fundamental feature of human life is that we were all dependent. So here's a sort of exemplary um, sentence of, uh, that, that gives a, a sense of what she said. Morality is built on the image of the independent, autonomous, rational individual, largely overlook the reality of human dependence and the morality for which it calls. The ethics of care attends to this central concern of human life and delineates the moral values involved. It refuses to relegate care to a realm outside morality. So she's going to say, no, care is central, and it's actually the thing we should be looking at most carefully if we want to understand kind of how we should interact with other people. Okay, so this is the kind of philosophical shift that I want you to see from a kind of, to put it in, in more rabbinic language, from a Havamina to a Matsgana, right? The, the original default assumption is actually the world of the nurse and the lullabies and the rest of it doesn't have a lot to do with political leadership and it doesn't have a lot to do with intellectual leadership and the kind of mascara of these other thinkers who are going to say wait no it actually has a lot to do with it and it's really really central um, i'm just going to pause there for questions for a moment feel free to type them in the chat or comment them on on facebook and hopefully we can use that to sort of cull a few few responses um but this is a sort of interesting shift i want to take just like a minute or two to, to think it through um, Michael, feel free to just, uh, maybe you could give me a sense of what, uh, of a, a few questions that people are asking. Maybe I can take a, a few at once, if that's a good way to do it. Yeah, uh, let's give people a minute and uh, just- Yeah, you know, we, get, right we can give people right. a minute to yeah. kind of react to that. 
I'm happy to hear. I love this. I hate this. I'm confused by what Hobbs is saying. All of those kinds of questions are great questions to ask at this stage. And if not, we can jump right into the rabbinic material. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not seeing any comments. Okay, so I would say let's great. just jump, let's keep going. Let's just jump in. All right. So what I want to present to you today is a kind of set of texts that will suggest that the rabbis in a certain way anticipated this move, um, but kind of subtly, and, and you know, I'm, I'm wary of saying like, oh yes, they understood like what it took until the 1990s for these philosophers to understand. But I do think that reading with this philosophical shift in mind can help us kind of see something new in rabbinic texts that we might've seen in other contexts. So we're gonna look at two examples. Um, we're gonna look first at the example of being a, a shas, leading prayers on a fast day. So we have this nice Mishnah, which lists a, a series of requirements that uh, uh, are sort of important for being the shas on a fast day. And what I want to do as we're reading them is just try to think about why these requirements are important. Imagine yourself, you're deciding what are the requirements going to be for who gets to be the shas on a fast day. I hope that you have never had the misfortune to be on a ritual committee who actually has to make these decisions. And you will... Um, and think about what are the requirements you think are important and see if you think what see what values you think are kind of reflected here. So so here's our Mishnah. Andu Bitfila, they they when they're standing and praying, The person who goes and um and and is the shots for them is someone who is elderly and I'll say who is fluent, but we'll see that the Gemara has a lot of fun with what regil means here. Um the Yeshlobanim, someone who has children. Uveto rekam, his house is empty. Empty in what way? I want to open for a moment. We'll come back to that. So that his heart will be full in prayer. So I'm interested to know, just like feel free to write this in the chat, what are some reasons you would think that it would be important, for example, for this person to have children on the one hand, and then for his house to be empty? I want to outline a couple possibilities of what it might mean for his house to be empty. So one option is, He's had, he's had kids, I think the kind of the straightforward reading and the way the Gemara and like most of the canonical sources go with this is he doesn't have enough economic resources to feed those children. That's the kind of standard rabbinic reading. I think it's also like you can play with other things. He has children, but they've left. Um, that might help you with Zakain, right? If he's really old, maybe he has children, but they've gone out and started their own families. And so that kind of makes at least the, the kind of chronology a little fit a little tighter. Um, either, either of those options is a possibility, but I'm interested to know what are some reasons you think they might be behind this requirement. And Michael, if people start chatting them in, feel free to like jump in. Um, but I think there are lots of reasons you might do this, but one of the, right, the stated reason of the Mishnah is she has There's something about the experience of having children and then potentially having children who you are not fully able to care for that actually makes you better at that may be a sense that you have something at stake, that there's like somebody who's, who's the, the person who's doing this is someone who actually stands to lose something often, right? It's useful to think about that in, in this context, we're talking about um, a fast day that often is proclaimed because there's a drought or some other kind of climate-based problem that's making agricul agriculture difficult. And so this is someone who can't feed their kids and feels like there's something on the line. And you actually need to be someone who's that deeply 
to use Shayla Ben Habib's words, situated or that deeply entrenched in order to be able to actually really pray for your community. So to be able to take on what the community needs, you yourself have to have like a deep personal and emotional attachment. This is in some way a kind of reverse of the Havamina about judges and about intellectual life that I spelled out for you in both a kind of Jewish context and the, um, and the philosophical context. Okay, we'll just, we'll forge ahead. So I think those are the kind of the, the main things. Um, all right. So the Gemara is going to pick this up and try to kind of um, expand and understand what's the reasoning behind the mission. That's our mission. Great, we're talking about the mission we just learned. Tana Rabbanan, our rabbi taught. So we have a nice brighta, which seems to potentially conflict with our Mishnah, or at least maybe partially conflict with our Mishnah. We're not going to adjudicate that now. But they're going to say, even if there's a person who's super old and wise and super smart, that person is not going to be, not going to get to the, the shots unless they're Adam Ragil. So you might have thought, if you kind of read this net, like naively, you would be like, oh, yeah, that's someone who's fluent. That's someone who is, like, used to doing this. They're the shots all the time, and they're just, like, doing their thing. That might be what your kind of intuition was. But if you think that you're not Rabbi Yehuda, um, or at least you're not the Gemara's Rabbi Yehuda, because the Gemara is now going to ask in nice curly bracket, or like curved parentheses, Ezehu Ragil, who is fluent? Now, the Gemara puts these things in cur curly brackets, or at least the Vilna does, because they seem like they're an interpolation. It's probably not there. In fact, that's borne out in some of the manuscripts, if you want to like go down that road. But we have a nice statement of Rabbi Yehuda, and I think this is actually the statement that's most important for our purposes. Rabbi Yehuda Omer, so now we're going to go to a kind of more detailed description of what are the qualities that the shots has to have. But notice that Rabbi Yehuda's statement is not like a great description on it. Like this chunk of Rabbi Yehuda's statement isn't really responding to the question, is it who regular, right? It just is a kind of different sentence. It's been sort of stitched together by this stuff. We'll see later. It, it makes a little more sense, but it's still like the sound is doing some work. So, okay, Rabbi Yehuda is saying, we need someone who cares for children, and he, but who doesn't have enough food and who goes out to the field, but still has an empty house. So I think that the picture that's being described here is this is a person who doesn't have enough to feed their children and who is like suffering so much economically that they will be better able to pray. They have something on the line. But we're not going to drop out the kind of technical proficiency um, aspect also either. We're going to leave that in there. So in a kind of comical way, we're going to list all the other qualities that the shot should have. This is a high bar. So if and when Hashem, we get back to shul, those of you who do this, think about meeting this bar and what it would be like. Difficult. Okay, this is a long list. You're like, okay, this person needs to know melodies and they should be nice. Oh, and by the way, 
they should know all of Tanakh and all of Midrash and all of Hakan. Oh, yeah, and also the Brachot. Probably the Brachot in this scenario are actually Brachot that are kind of composed like in real time. So knowing the Brachot is a different task than like knowing our Brachot. So it may be sort of, it is a technical skill, but it's a different kind of technical skill. But what I want you to see is like, there's almost, there's a kind of mounting tension of all rhetorically of all the different things the person needs to know in such a way that it almost gets to be like a little bit funny, not, you know, not like totally crazy, but just like, like, oh yeah, I want you to have this, I want you to have this and this, and like, it's a, there's a mounting sense that there's like a lot going on here and there's a lot that we require of you. Oh, great. So the Gemara then is going to go back and kind of reinterpret Rabbi Yehuda's statement because you might have noticed Mitupal is like kind of weird, like phrase, isn't it? A word, conjugation. It doesn't make a lot of sense. It's a little confusing. And the Mitupal, the Anglo, is even more confusing. So, the Gemara is going to like give you a little help understanding that. He's like, Mitupal, the Anglo, Hainu, Beto Rika. That means, like, what does it mean when he says Mitupal, the Anglo? He cares for them and doesn't have enough. It means that he has an empty house. I think basically that means there's nothing in the refrigerator in kind of more contemporary terms. Okay. Rav Chisa, on the other hand, I think is going to shift us away from what we see in Rabbi Yehuda and I think kind of more generally in Eretz type sources about this um, is an emphasis on economic hardship. And Rav Chisa is going to like back this away. He's like, no, 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 no. I don't know what I'm talking about. Mitu is Zehu Shevet Rek, or sorry, he's going to do a, a, a drash on Beto Rekan. So he says, Zehu Shevet Rekan Min Ha'avera. Not that his house is literally empty and there's no food. It's that this is a person who never sinned and his house is free from sin. So he's, Rav Chisa is going to come along and kind of shift things from being about economic hardship to being more, I would say, about a kind of moral or religious excellence or expertise. He's going to shift Kind of, I think when we we set it up, we had a habamina and maskana. He's like more on the team of the habamina, and Rabbi Yehuda is more on the team of the maskana of the like philosophical shift I set up here at the beginning. Okay, ufir amar abaye abaye that shalo yase maybe low shame Rabbi Yelduta. So this is a person who never had anything bad said about them when they were young. You might also think that this is a kind of another version of the moral excellence vision of like what it means to be a good leader or what are the requirements to be a good leader. Um, but I actually, I, I, I was talking about this with a teacher of mine, Rabbi Jason Rubenstein, who suggested to me that actually this is not, Abaye is not on Team Hathamina. Abaye doesn't think that like we should just think about people as adults. In a way, he thinks that this is about moral excellence. But that moral excellence is, rep, like, is found in the person's past. So it actually does matter where this person comes from. And his ability to be a kind of participant in public life is dependent on that. Great. Okay. So what we've seen, just to sum up from this Gemara, is that, at least from Rabbi Yehuda, there's a sense that the experience of caring for children, but not having the resources to do it, is actually something that will help you get better in touch with the experience of a public that's hurting. Having some personal experience that's relevant actually really matters. 
So it's not the model of somebody who needs to be completely distant. It's actually that like really being involved is going to give you a new set of insights. So you might say to me, okay, great. It really matters that Rabbi Yehuda is caring for children. But like, what do you mean caring for children? Do you mean he's like, you know, he's trying to get them economic resources, he's providing them with food, or you mean, is he like, is Rabbi Yehuda changing diapers here? Um, and so I think this question is a little bit open. Um, we're not going to see the next two texts inside, but what I want you to just know about the, the two texts from the Yerushalmi um, that are here are that they kind of pull us in both directions. So you see this text from Demai, which suggests that um, if a father has the technical status of a chavir, he's like super particular about tithing, then um, if the children are kind of mitufalin by him, then it is the case that they also have that status. So they're part of the same economic household. So that seems to be about kind of a more stereotypical like male picture of a father who is going to be, you know, providing for his family in some economic sense. But you can also see in this text in Kdubot and a few other places, again, mostly Aristotelian sources, which is like very interesting, um, that care can also mean a kind of more direct involvement in someone's like physical, physical needs, especially to do with death. Um, so I think like the thing that I want you all to see out of this is just that there are kind of two, that when Rabbi Yehuda said, this is a, we want someone who is taking care of children, it could mean taking care of children in the sense of providing them with the resources that they need, but not necessarily being involved in like the day-to-day -day, like diapering, feeding aspects. Or it could mean a kind of more involved direct physical care. And I don't think that it's super clear which of those two things it is. Although obviously like if, if, you, if you really were like, Sarah, you gotta decide right now which one it is, I'd be like probably it's economic because there's a kind of that general assumption in rabbinic culture. But it seems like the text open up both options. Great, I'm gonna pause there for questions or, or thoughts. Um, and I'd love to hear kind of your reactions to these texts or questions about them. Yeah, we had a couple come through already and people should feel free to um, write to us in, in the chat on Zoom or, or comment on Facebook Live if you have additional thoughts or questions. Um, but we had a couple come through already. So I'll just kind of um, relay some of those. One of, one of them was the, um, you know, kind of a, a comment on the relationship between the Shaliyah Tzibor, the prayer leader, um, as, as a provider and as a supplicant. Um, and that, you know, the idea of part, part of what may be at stake here is that the Shatz has been a provider uh, and is all of a sudden finding themselves in kind of at the, at the opposite end of that hierarchy. Um, and so noting the ways in which, um, you know, by praying to, to God, who's often referred to, you know, with parental language, uh, that it kind of puts the shoe on the other foot. Uh, you know, we had a comment as well, uh, or a question about the ways in which we balance on the one hand, uh, you know, someone having children who are no longer at home has the ability to focus on a task uh, without necessarily needing to think about what's going on at home. Uh, their attention isn't divided the same way, but uh, at the same time, someone who's representing community needs to be able to understand at least some of the challenges of the congregation. Uh, so the ways in which those interact. 
Uh, and then we had a third comment kind of talking about the, the last source in the debate where it seems like we're potentially playing into, um, you know, some, some rabbinic discomfort with the, uh, you know, the Amha Aretz, kind of the, you know, the, the, the average person, we might call them. And, um, you know, whether, whether one might read into that debate over, you know, are, are you providing for children or is this about your personal knowledge and your personal righteousness as, um, you know, potentially some, some push and pull there over, you know, what, what are the qualifications for, uh, you know, for, for, for being a, a shaliyah sibor writ large as it relates to being a leader of the community or an exemplary person. Um, so that's, that's some of what we're seeing so far, um, but people should feel free to Great. jump in with other things as well. Yeah, totally feel free to jump in. Let me just respond to a couple of those things. Um, on the first sort of father-son flip, yeah, I think that's definitely what's going on here. Um, in a kind of more expansive version of this conversation, I think one source that you would want to like plug in is Honi, who has this kind of like disobedient child like description and, and rhetoric around him um, as a, like a negative model of how you're supposed to pray. And this is a positive model. So there's something where I think often, right, we, and like the liturgy plays out a sort of God as father person praying as child. Um, but I think the dynamic is actually much more complicated. It's, it's that, and you are also supposed to be occupying kind of the parent position, at least in these settings. So I think one of the kind of complex um, like dynamics that that brings out is that when you're in a position of kind of power or care, care, and I think like those things are often linked for, for someone who is dependent on you, you're both in a position of tremendous vulnerability and tremendous power. And like when you go before God, you're trying to reconcile those two things and figure out like, on the one hand, I am the person who in some sense controls whether this person like will survive. And also, I'm totally not in control because actually what matters is that God sends rain. And I think that is, like, thinking of that dramatization is really interesting and, like, certainly going into the, like, yami nori liturgy, the kind of push and pull between thinking of yourself actually as a, as a father figure, also talking to, like, the father figure is an interesting one. Um, so, yeah, I think that's, like, 100% there. Um, yeah, I in terms of the kind of rabbinic discomfort with Amhara, it's totally... Um, I think that, though, if you want to read Abaye, you can read that as either a really high standard or a really low one. So it might be nothing bad was ever said about this kid, which is, like, kind of impossible because all children act up. Or on the, on the flip side, it may be talking about something right? kind of the language of Shemra has this, like, very strong kind of potential sexual associations with it. And so it may just be that this is about... Um, certain kinds of very severe transgressions and not just like, you know, a kid throwing a tantrum or something. Um, I think it could be potentially either of those. Um, yeah, the question of like children not being there as a kind of good, as, as a model, I think, uh, or as providing more concentration. I think it's a really interesting one because the, the, the elder is someone who both has experienced that sense of having people dependent on them, but also at that moment is not like feeling the dependency, right? Like the kid is not coming and like yanking, yanking on the end of this person's policies that are happening, right? Like there's a kind of, it, it provides a certain distance. Um, and the sources we're gonna see next on the flip side, like that distance becomes potentially like 
something that at least Rashi is like deeply uncomfortable with. Um, so I think we'll just, we'll, we'll charge ahead, but feel free to like chat in comments and et cetera as we go. Um, Cause I'm super interested to hear what you all say. Um, you know, either now or later. Okay, so we've seen that this is, this is there's sort of one model in the, um, the, the stuff about being a shot. Um, I wanna see a, a different model in, um, in Dayanu, which has sort of similar kind of trajectories, but ultimately ends up, I think, going to a little bit of a different, a different place. Okay, so we have a nice little bright dot, and basically what we're gonna be talking about is this bright dot. Seems contained, but it won't be as contained as you think. So, this time, Ein Moshivin Hedrin, Zakain Visaris, Vimisha Ein Lobanim. Right? So, in first, we learn in our Brayta that the following sets of people don't get to be on a Sanhedrin. A Zakain, an old person. Remember that you had to be Zakain to be the Shah, potentially at least. Visaris, a eunuch. Umisha Ein Lobanim, someone who doesn't have children. Okay. With that Brayta alone, I think you would be hard pressed to come up with a clear rationale for why all of these things are um, requirements to be on a Sanhedrin, although I'm interested to hear what people think those is like kind of the psychological picture that's behind those, um, those requirements. So feel free to chat that in as we go also. Um, and then we have Rabbi Yehuda, our friend, coming back and adding something. Rabbi Yehuda Musif Achachzeri, also a wicked person. So you could read this either way, Rabbi Yehuda, is actually explaining or helps us understand kind of what's the most important thing going on here. But the fact that Rabbi Yehuda has to add it maybe suggests that that's not sort of already contained in the previous set of requirements. But I think actually the key to understanding this is the next little line. The opposite is true. I.e., these people do get to be on the Sanhedrin and maybe even should be the only people on the Sanhedrin. Um, in a case of like where someone has sort of incited rebellion, a potential usually rebellion against God in some sort of polytheistic way, but it could be all kinds of, or idolatrous way rather, but it could be all kinds of things. The Rahman Anmar, because the Torah says, don't show him any pity or compassion and don't like shield him or protect him. So I think that one way to read the, the initial requirement that someone who is old, a eunuch, or doesn't have children, um, can't be on the Sanhedrin, is that we get a clue in this Bichilufe headline, because what matters is your ability to show compassion for the people that you're judging. I think this could go a couple of different ways, right? So it might be that you feel more compassion for the person who's been harmed, because you're worried that your child might be in the same position. On the flip side, I think you might be show more compassion for the accused, because you know what it's like to have someone you love and care for and worked really hard to educate mess up, right? You're a parent, you saw that this child makes mistakes as we all do. So I think exactly how that compassion plays out could depend on exactly, um, it could kind of go either way depending on the person's experience. But the assumption here of the rabbis is that there's something about the experience of having children that actually matters for your ability to be on a Sanhedrin. Clear, obviously, that you need to know various halakhic principles, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but also, you need to have had the experience of having have, have, having children, and it can't be uveto reikan in the sense of your kids have already left. Right? You can't be zakim. Great. So the question is, all right, what's up with zakim? And more generally, like, what's up with these requirements? So Rashi gives, I think, a really fascinating and 
classic Rashi super succinct um, description that is very interesting for a proof. He says, all right, here's my, I'm going to tell you what Zakain is about. Zakain is about so an elder can't be on the Sanhedrin. Why? Because he's already forgotten the pain of raising children. And therefore, he will not be merciful. He knows what it's like to raise kids, but actually, like, 20 years have gone by, and he's forgotten. And the same is true for a eunuch, presumably because if he had kids, it was a long time ago, and now he's undergone some sort of substantial transformation, or maybe actually he never had children in the first place. But in either way, in either sense, doesn't have access to the pain of raising children. This is one place where I think actually the rabbinic text help us reflect back on the philosophy in a very interesting way. A lot of the philosophers I've quoted and certainly held, maybe not Ben, ben Habib as much, but certainly Virginia held, are really interested in kind of highlighting potentially positive ethical instruction and information you get from caring for dependent people. And they often, therefore, portray that experience in a really positive light, and they talk about how meaningful and great it is to have this experience of caring for someone and how much, like, how many nice warm feelings it produces, etc. Um, and I think here, Rashi gives a, like, super useful corrective to that. He's like, no, this is a painful process. This is a fundamentally painful process. And the thing that will make you merciful is not the joy of building a family, but that pain of being so utterly responsible to someone that you feel like maybe you kind of don't exist, right? You like give yourself over. That's the thing that we need to see in a judge. So Rashi is going to sort of shift the picture. Okay. So Rashi is, you know, being the great rabbinic mind that he is, he doesn't take this phrase, which I find so intriguing, like kind of out of the sky. In fact, it comes from um, a bunch of rabbinic texts. And what I want you to see in the last couple of minutes is that um, those rabbinic texts, interestingly, present two very different pictures, or at least the texts we're going to look at present two different pictures of what the pain of raising children is and what that pain is, in, like how that pain is important for being a judge. Um, and that those pictures are gendered. So there's a version of this that seems to be talked about mostly about men, and there's a version that's talked about mostly about women. And probably Rashi here is talking mostly about the kind of male version, but we might imagine what would it be like to have the kind of rabbinic leader that also remembers the version that's in this picture gendered female, and then like we might say, okay, actually these different models are accessible to lots of people, even if in the rabbi's mind they're gendered. Okay, so buckle your seatbelts. Here is one of the crazier midrashim that's just like out there. All right. So here's a, here's a little story for you. Amar Shmuel, Amar Okay, my Amar. What does it mean when it says this? Ki ata avinu, ki Abraham lo yadanu, ve Yisrael lo yakirenu. Ata Hashem avinu goalinu, me'olam shemapa ba'ati lava. All right. So, oh, sorry. Me'olam shemapa. All right, so what does it mean when it says, you're our father, though Abraham doesn't know us, and Israel, brackets, probably Jacob, doesn't recognize us? You are father. You are God, our father. Okay, so Lassie Lavo, in, in some imagined eschatological future, Yomar lo HaKadosh Baruch Hu Abraham, God is going to say to Abraham, but your children sinned against me. 
Amar lefanav, ribona shalolam, yimchu, al kedushat shemecha. Abraham is like, yeah. My ch-. So God says to Abraham, your children have sinned against me. And Abraham says, yeah, that's true. I think that what the best thing for you to do right now is to destroy them for the sake of, the, the sake of your name. Get rid of them. Erase all evidence of them. Okay. God is not particularly satisfied with this situation. So he says, Amar, Amar le'ele Yaakov, zehava le'tzar gidul bani. Efshar gubai rachmane alayhu. So perhaps because God knows that to be a good judge, you need to have sargidul bani. And he's like, no, no, no. Abraham, not a good candidate. Interestingly, he thinks Abraham doesn't have sargidul bani. I think you should potentially question that or at least imagine different kinds of stars that Abraham might experience. Um, he says, no, I'm going to go ask Yaakov, because Yaakov had the experience of Sargidul Bani, the pain of raising children. So I think there are lots of ways to construe this, but like the two episodes that certainly come to mind are, let's think about what happened to Yosef, and all of the kind of ensuing insight, infighting that, that like stems from that situation, and potentially also like what happens with Dina, although maybe that's not that clear. I'm sure by Rahmat. Raphael, maybe Yaakov will have mercy because he's experienced the pain of raising children. So I think there, right, the pain of raising children seems to be about something like your kids are going to grow up and they're going to behave badly and actually even they're going to fight each other and you will be kind of powerless to stop it and it's going to be kind of bloody and like horrible. All right, so he goes to Yaakov and Yaakov is supposed to meet the requirements for being a rabbinic judge, but lo and behold, he's not all that merciful. He says, Amarlai, oh, sorry, Amarlai, Bana Echadu, Amarlefanav, Ribbana Shalolam, Yimchu al Kadu Shachimacha. He says the same thing as Abraham. So God says, Your children sin. Notice he doesn't say, Your children sinned against me. He just says, Your children sin. And Yaakov's like, Yeah, I think you should destroy them. They're just like, it's irreparable. Something you can do. Okay. He says, God then proclaims, kind of quoting him, quoting God's self, Amar, Amar, So basically, elders have no reason, youths have no counsel, no matter who I talk to, whether it's Abraham, whether it's Yaakov, I don't get the answer I want. At this point, you might say to yourself, why is God going around and asking the avot, asking the fathers for some kind of authorization to destroy B'nai Israel, but then seemingly not wanting to do it? God is himself, I think, having a kind of version of the Sargidul Banyan that Yaakov has, where on the one hand, he totally loves them. On the other hand, he sees them messing up all the time. And so even if Yaakov himself doesn't actually have the kind of mercy, it seems like God is trying to find at least some kind of support for having that kind of mercy. Oh, so then he goes to Yitzchak, and he's like, all right, I tried Abraham, I tried Yaakov, I'm going to try Yitzchak. Amr lo Yitzchak. Your children sin against me. Are they your children? Are they my children, but not yours? In other words, okay. Okay. So it seems like you wanted to claim them as your own children. So if they're your own children, you got to, like, 
own that for all it's worth. And don't come coming to me trying to get me to give you a justification for their sinfulness or to tell you that you, that you should destroy them. In either case, you gotta have to decide. In other words, don't stop like kind of pushing back and going back and forth about this. You have to own the fact that you have these sinful children. So I think what's being dramatized on kind of different levels of this midrash, but even in the, the little phrase, is that there's a kind of, one of the most painful aspects of raising children is actually the feeling of disappointment when they mess up. And so then I think it's pretty easy to read back into the, um, into the, the way Rashi does and to say that, well, like one of the things that is sort of key to being a good judge is actually having the experience of having someone you love really disappoint you and having to figure out whether you're going to forgive them or whether you're going to judge them harshly. Because actually we're all in some sense part of that kind of familial group when you're sort of, when you're judging and you need to have had that experience, even if the people before you aren't necessarily your family. So right where, where someone like Hobbes is going to say, I just want to jettison everything that happened in your past and everything that goes on in your family life. The rabbis are going to say, no, I want you to hold on to that because it's actually a super important experience for understanding how you're supposed to react to people who mess up. Um, in, in legal context, and I have to, you have to take that experience with you. Um, I think one thing that's important to see here is in this kind of gendered male, like father figure version, the tsar comes at the point at which the children are kind of old enough to do things of moral significance on their own, right? These are grown-up kids, or relatively grown-up kids, who go along and then do all kinds of things that get them in trouble, um, which is not necessarily Kind of the only place that you would think to start Gidulbanim and not the place that like the care ethicist wants to find an experience of care. Right? They, they tend to focus on, you know, diapering babies, breastfeeding, those kinds of experiences. And this approach focuses on, on different ones. Okay, great. Um, I want us to just hop on to the, the last, probably the last text we'll see together. Oh, we might see one more, um, which imagines in a gendered, a way that's gendered female, um, and that looks um, really, or feminine, I should say, looks um, really different and isn't about kind of once a child comes to adulthood, what happens to them um, and feeling disappointed in them, but it's actually an experience of pain and suffering that comes when a child doesn't even reach adulthood and maybe even like isn't born. Um, so this this little midrash is a kind of um, drasha on the um, the curse that's given to Chava after she's um, eaten from the tree, and this is all the bad things that will happen, happen to her. So um, this is where we get into the kind of pregnancy question. Oh, this is the pain, your travail is like the kind of first word of this long list. Um, this is the pain of conception. Okay. This is the pain of pregnancy itself. In sadness, this is the uh, pain of stillbirth. TLD, like you will give birth. This is the pain of actually giving birth itself. That's how like, the verse goes. So you can see what's happening here is there's a kind of stepping through all of the aspects from conception to birth um, and then to raising children. And each of those is a step where, so on the one hand, you might say this is kind of setting up a picture of how development is supposed to go. 
But even as it's setting that up in a kind of linear way, conception, pregnancy, stillbirth, birth, raising children, it's also telling you all the things that can go wrong and all of the kind of suffering and pain that can be found along the way. And I want to wager to you, that also might be a resource for thinking about um, what it means to be a good leader, a good judge, in ways that maybe the rabbis couldn't quite imagine, but that the text kind of invite us to do. Okay, and then we have this amazing, like super painful, like punch in the stomach line. Amar Rebbe Lazar Bar Shimon, Noach lo adam legadel legilion shel zezitim bagalil, velo legadel tinok echad beYisrael. It would be better. It is better for a person to raise a grove of olive trees in the Galil than it is to to raise grow a child in Eretz Israel. So I think he could be talking about a lot of things here, but it seems like he might be talking about kind of a, a sense like this process often goes wrong and there's sort of nothing we can do about it. Um, and he may also be talking about kind of this, the kind of economic pressures that were sort of at the forefront um, in the, the earlier stuff about being a shot. Could be either of those things. I think also just like the Eretz Yisraeli texts are much more focused on this economic piece, as I said. Um, and so there is, yeah, there's this sense that like this process is so fraught and it's going to be so difficult. So it's not necess necessarily the pain of having a kid who grows up who then rejects things that you think are important or behaves badly. Actually, the fact that like a lot of kids just don't make it. And that is in itself is a kind of like formative experience for a lot of people. And, and I challenge us then to think about like both in the dominant context in the kind of halakhic leadership context and also in like all kinds of other um, intellectual and, and kind of religious leadership roles, what does it mean to bring the voice of both the kind of loss um, of, of, of children into the picture? Um, and what would it mean to actually like base our judges, judgments on that? And um, I think that's a, like a challenge that we need to kind of all work on and think about. Um, in the last five minutes, I wanna suggest also kind of take one step beyond um, what the kind of transition from Havamina to Muscana that I set up at the beginning, the transition from the assumption that being a good leader just is about a certain kind of technical expertise that is best kept separate from family life. Then I said, no, no, we should consider actually what the experience of caring for people really has to tell us. Um, I want to suggest that it's not only the experience of actually caring for like a particular other being who's right there in front of you, um, but there are other kinds of care and expectation that can figure into this, even if it's not just um, kind of a real particular like screening baby that's demanding your attention. Um, so to see that, I want to talk about um, this last text in Shabbat. And just, I'm not going to read the Mishnah, but I'm just going to tell you kind of what's going on. This is a mission of describe, discussing what are the kinds of things that you can like tie onto yourself and go out on go out of the um, private like space on Shabbat without violating the prohibition on carrying. And the rabbis then consider this thing that is called a preservation stone, um, and which seems like it's about um, something that that prevents miscarriage. Um, and the rabbis are going to question whether we can carry this on Shabbat. So here's what they say. You can carry a preservation stone on Shabbat. Notice this is a rock. You're going to carry it in your hand. Right? Like, this is a pretty counterintuitive claim. 
Okay. So that already is like a big move. But Rebbe Mayer is like, I want to make a bigger move. Rebbe Mayer, Mishum Rebbe Mayer, so they said in the name of Rebbe Mayer, even with a counterweight for the this special stone that functions as a kind of amulet. The thing you don't have to carry the real stone. You can just carry a symbol of the stone, i.e. something that's the same weight. So this person can do it not only if there's kind of a precedent that she might miscarry because she's miscarried before, but actually if she is just worried about it, right? It just matters that she's concerned um, or even actually it doesn't have to be that she's concerned, just that there's a possibility that she might, um, she might miscarry. And she doesn't even have to be pregnant. It just has to be possible that she's pregnant. Now, in their time, it's probably much harder to actually tell that you were pregnant at a given moment. But the idea is, Actually, we're willing to break or at least like be flexible around kind of key premise, key parts of rabbinic law, just in order to kind of honor the, the feeling of wishing to have a child. Um, and I want to kind of note that that wish is actually expressed in the act of carrying the stone. Um, so that in itself is a kind of form of like what philosophers might call care work. Um, that actually can shape who you are as a person in a way that might change how you approach legal questions, or it might change how you approach a philosophical question or a theological question. So all of those experiences, I think, both the ones of like taking care of a kid who wakes up in the middle of the night and needs your attention, and the experience of like really wishing for some for the, the opportunity to do that are things that can both be really interesting and fundamental, like sites for thinking about moral questions, philosophical questions, theological questions, and also can be like inform the way we act in our communities and the way we lead in our communities. Um, I think that's basically time. So I'm happy to take uh, questions in the last, or comments in the last couple of minutes, um, but it's really been a joy to learn. Yeah, if anyone has any last comments or questions, uh, feel free to chat them or put them in Facebook Live. Um, and then as well, let me just uh, remind everyone that uh, this is the first of a two-part series. Um, so we will be uh, back next week as well uh, on Wednesday the 22nd, same time, 7 p.m. with uh, Rabbi Sam Liebens, who is going to be giving a class called Phil Philosophical Scissors in the Hands of the Rabbis, uh, talking about a Talmudic debate about the limits of acceptable testimony in a court of law uh, while taking a detour through contemporary philosophy of language. Um, following that, we will have programs coming up uh, for public programs for Tisha B'Av, as well as various things throughout Elul and the Chagim. Um, so please do keep an eye out for that. I think that's it. Um, so thank you again so much to, to Sarah um, for, for this really, really wonderful presentation. Um, and thank you to all of you for being here. Uh, have a wonderful night and uh, we hope to see you back here next week.